we, we, we move through the book of Ezra. We started with Ezra because that's chronologically where things start. I had five sermons that took us from Ezra chapter 1 through Ezra chapter 4. The first verse of Ezra chapter 5, when you're in Ezra 5.1, it mentions the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. So then we pause the, uh, the narrative of, of Ezra chronologically since it mentions the prophets in Ezra 5.1. And so then for parts 6 through 8 of the series, I preached through the book of Haggai. I did that first. And then in parts 9 through 15, I preached all the way through the book of Zechariah. So we have, henceforth, we, we've, we've covered the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. And now we are returning back to Ezra chapter 5, 6, 7 in that section. So we went back to chapter 5. And then in chapter 5, I gave three sermons that worked our way through chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. And then we paused the narrative at Ezra chapter 7. Um, because somewhere in this section is where scholars pace, place the overlapping history of the book of Esther. If you look up here, here is a graph depicting the overlap of this history, and you can see that the book of Ezra gets placed somewhere in this section, and so what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to preach through the book of Esther, and then what I'm going to do, we'll return back to Ezra, and we're just going to keep working our way chronologically through the text. That said, let me pause. I'm going to turn the wheel really abruptly. I'm going to take a really abrupt turn, just pause on this like history and post-exile or whatever. Just, er, just let me take a quick turn, come back to things. Um, in our culture, there is a gross false dichotomy between faith and reason or science. A lot of people think that, you know, when you come to church, you check your brains at the door. A lot of people think that there's a difference between sort of science and spirituality or faith and reason. This, this is a patently absurd false dichotomy that is easy to deconstruct and to prove wrong. Uh, just quickly, uh, for example, we have many scientific reasons for believing in God. Uh, you no doubt, uh, hearing, hearing me preach, I often weave in reasons and science for the things that we believe. And one of the, one of the you know, sort of greatest reasons for faith is what's known as the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, therefore, the universe had a cause. Now, scientifically speaking, we know the universe wasn't always here. It came into existence. What's known as the cosmological singularity, or more popularly, it's referred to as the Big Bang. Here's the thing about bangs. Bangs need bangers. Uh, it's the law of cause and effect. You don't have effects floating around without causes. So if the universe had a beginning, and it did, and everything that has a beginning has a cause, the universe had a beginning, therefore, the universe had a cause. I could go on with reasons that are scientific for our faith in God. Hence debunking this whole notion that like, you know, faith and science or faith and reason are these different kinds of things. Uh, we don't check our brains at the door when we come to church. Uh, we do the opposite. We actually put our thinking caps on. Now that said, even though we have reasons for believing in God, let's be honest. We all go through moments where we may existentially feel like God is not with us. Have you had those moments? I'm alone up here, I guess, right? No? I'm the only one? I'm the only one where you feel like, God, where are you? And rationally, you know the reasons that you have for his existence, and you can rehearse those, you know? Everything that has a beginning has a cause, the universe had a beginning, so the universe had a cause, right? Uh, the, the, you can look at the teleological data for design, you can look at the moral argument, you, you can rehearse these, and you know, but, 
but often facts and feelings can have a way of not working together. Feelings are wonderful servants. They're horrible masters. So when feelings get, a, get ahead of us, right, it can do all, all kinds of trippy stuff with you. And so there are moments where we may existentially feel like God is not with us. But rationally, we know. We know we have reasons for his existence. F- furthermore, rationally, we know that God is omnipresent. For you see, everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe had a beginning, so the universe had a cause. Whatever the cause of the universe is cannot be what the universe is, because prior to its coming into existence, it was not there. So the universe is, is matter, and it's spatially located. So the cause of the universe can't be matter, it must be immaterial, and it can't be spatially located, it must be everywhere. So the cause of the universe is this immaterial, omnipresent being. So I, I know that he's omnipresent, I know that he's everywhere, and yet I can go through moments in my life, and you can too, where you feel like God is not there. Maybe, maybe not that he doesn't exist, but just kind of like, where are you? The feeling that though he is omnipresent, that, that you existentially aren't experiencing that, and you might feel like he's distant. And again, feelings make wonderful servants, but horrible masters. And I, I believe that God wouldn't want us to live this way. He's, he's a loving father. He wants us to know his presence. Now, in his way of working in the world, sometimes he does pull back. There is a doctrine of the hiddenness of God. We are urged in Scripture to seek after Him, you see. And so sometimes you go through those moments where you feel like, I don't know where you are. Or maybe to say it another way, I don't know what you are doing. Now, that was a rough turn. Let, let, me, let me turn back to the book of Esther. Now, the book of Esther in our Bible has a powerfully creative way of teaching us about the experience of God not being there. Speaking of feeling like God is not there in our lives, the book of Esther is the one book of the Bible, get this, where God is literally not there. He's literally not there in the book of Esther. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it is the one book in the Bible that never explicitly mentions God. You know how when you're reading the Bible, it'll be like, the word of the Lord came to the prophet, blah, 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 you know, and then God is speaking through the prophet first person or something like that. Or you're reading through the Bible and it'll say, then God said, or you're reading through the Bible and it's like, and then God did. We don't have the word of the Lord, then God did, then God said. We don't even have someone in passing saying, hey, have you heard about God? There is no mention of God in the, in the actual writing of the book. This kind of God talk is entirely absent. And when you read the book, you, you, you might be pulled back from that. And you'll ask that question sort of like, well, hey, where is God? Where is God? And yet, when you read the book closely, you'll see he's all over the place. The author creatively does this, I believe, with intention to draw you in. It reminds me of a quote from the Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis when he wrote this, We may ignore, but we can nowhere evade the presence of God. The world is crowded with him. He walks everywhere incognito. And the incognito is not always hard to penetrate. The real labor is to remember to attend. In fact, to come awake, still more to remain awake. Now, the word attend here is important. It it, it gets home that becoming aware of God's presence is not a passive matter. It actually requires of us some attending. It calls for us to be still. It calls for us to drown out the noises that are preventing us from hearing God. It calls for us you see, the, 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 those things that are, are clouding us from seeing Him. It calls for us 
to, to, to clean the goggles, to clean out the ears, to attend to these things, our sight and our hearing, that we may behold the God who is with us and the God who is on the move in our lives and in the world. As we come to the Word of God today, and particularly with this book of Esther, we need to attend. We need to put our thinking caps on. We need to press in. We need to attend to the text, which doesn't mention God, to actually see how it is showing us God and his presence in our lives in real human history, specifically through the chaos of pagan politics, which shows us, which shows us the, the juxtaposition of chaos with God's control. This brings me to the title of today's message. It is Providence Over Politics. Providence is a word that we use to describe God's meticulous control of the world, including our lives in human history and more. Speaking of history, that brings me to the first point on the outline, context. I've been talking about what we have covered so far in Ezra 1 through 7, Haggai, Haggai, and Zechariah. Um, if we're going to attend to seeing God in the book of Esther, that creatively does not mention him, so that the readers have to press into the text to see him, we need to have the historical and literary context in mind. Now, uh, furthermore, the larger scope of the story of the Bible. You know the story of the Bible opens with creation. It opens with the beginning. God creates. God creates the cosmos. God creates humanity. God pours his love upon humanity. He makes humanity even in his own image. He, he provides for humanity his law, his will, his, his love, everything. He provides everything for them. They have absolute paradise. God's love is unrequited. They reject him. They rebel against him. And sadly, they lose paradise. They are exiled from Eden. So the, the beginning of the story of the Bible with God's creation with Eden moves into peril. And you follow the storyline. You see the peril of humanity and humanity's unraveling and darkness is consuming the earth. And then God comes and, and he, he, he offers humanity expectation. He offers humanity promise. If, if you look up here, here's just a, a quick kind of history of God's people. Expectation and promise. On the heels of Eden and peril, we see God coming and he offers a promise or a covenant to humanity. He specifically elects a patriarch, this man named Abram, who he later renames as Abraham, and he promises him a land, a seed, and a blessing. That he's going to restore paradise through this particular patriarch and his progeny in a specific place that is going to overflow in prosperity and ultimately bring humanity back to paradise. You continue in the storyline, moving from this election of the patriarchs, and we find ourselves in the Exodus and Providence, where this chosen people end up in slavery. And so God sends the prophet Moses, who's a great uh, prophet and abolitionist, who God uses to rescue the people, to deliver the people. There, as they have escaped the darkness of slavery, uh, the prophet Moses brings Torah, or law, to the people. The law was given to the people because they were going to be in a place. They were going to become a nation in a land. And the law was to mark them uh, as citizens of that land. The law of Moses isn't just a spiritual code. It's actually a, a civil code uh, for the government to lead them as a nation. They, they are told that they need to take heed of this law, this Torah that has been given to them, as a part of being in the land of promise. If they do not tend to the law, then they will face uh, the consequences of the law, which is what justice is. If they obey the law and they love the Lord and they live for the Lord, they are going to flourish in the land. Land, seed, blessing. They come to the land. Uh, this brings you to the establishment of place. 
they take the land and they implement the law in the land and you follow the storyline and it's not long before you see compromise. You see them scrambling to have a human king. Uh, God is supposed to be their king, so this is a slap in the face. They, elect, uh, they make a horrible choice in electing this guy named Saul. And God graciously, graciously elects a man named David who he raises up to the throne and gives to David that promise tying into the promise of Abraham, of a land and a seed and a blessing. And God promises to David that he would send one through his seed who would sit on the throne forever. With messianic prophetic overtones, this figure who's going to come through the line of Abram and the line of David is actually going to be the key and the catalyst for restoring the creation. For you see, God's promised people who have been rescued and saved by him are still fallen. They're still children of the fall. And as a result, they are prone to wander and make a mess of things. God graciously brought them to the place. The place was established, but they do not heed the Torah. And as a result, they are exiled. Once again, you see humanity exiled. It's just like the very beginning when our mother and father were exiled from paradise. Now the people of promise are exiled from the promised land. They don't live right. Uh, the kingdom of Assyria comes in and wipes out the north, uh, the northern part of the nation of Israel. Babylon comes in and wipes out the remaining uh, groups in the south. And, and, and they're exiled. They're dragged out. Assyria scatters uh, the tribes in the north. Babylon actually kidnaps them and brings them back into their empire. And the people have prophets who are coming to them in all of these eras. Uh, before the establishment of the land, when they're established in the land, and after they're booted out of the land, prophets who are coming who are saying this, the promise that God made with Abraham is unconditional. God is going to do what he said in spite of us. And this will involve a Messiah who will come, who will atone for our sins. And God will bring the people to the land. God will do what he promised. And, and, and what God has given the prophet Moses, the Torah, we nevertheless still need to heed because the law reveals our sin and our need for a Savior. The exile of the people, then you see the final point up here in the, this uh, review of the history of God's people, emergence and prophecy. Then they are emerged again the children who are in Babylon come to life again. You see, Babylon gets jacked by another foreign power. Assyria, Babylon, they fall. There's a new kid in town, the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medo-Persian Empire comes in and wipes out Babylon, and they have all of these suppressed people groups that Babylon uh, suppressed, and they're like, whatever, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. I'm not tripping on you guys. Uh, there's a bunch of Jewish exiles in the land. Whatever, you guys want to go back home, fine with me, I don't care. Because part of the thing when you're talking about uh, uh, ancient politics and taking over lands and colonizing and dominating, part of the thing of keeping your citizens in check or keeping them on your side is, is to give them certain freedoms. Uh, we're not like the last guy, you know, I'm the new cool stepdad or whatever, right? And uh, I'm still a jerk, but I'm going to let you do things that your regular dad wouldn't do. So the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and says, you guys can go back home. And you have these three waves, if you look up here, these three waves of the exiles coming back. And in the midst of this, we're reminded of the prophecies of Emmanuel and presence, the ultimate presence of God. Talking about where are you, God, when the Messiah comes, he will literally, he will literally tabernacle among his people. So these are the, the three waves in the emergence uh, they come with a figure named Zerubbabel, a figure named Ezra, and a figure named Nehemiah. The book of, of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah record this first wave of, you get this first wave of Zerubbabel, and they record these other waves. 
As you can see in the first wave, as Ezra records, which we've studied, this first wave of Zerubbabel, and the prophets Haggai and Zechariah who prophesy in this time. What's interesting with Haggai and Zechariah, when you read their prophecies overlapping with the chronology of them coming to the land, you see in Haggai and Zechariah, the people ain't right. They're, they're, still, they're still not right. Uh, they're, they're still, even after being, having gone through all of this uh, uh, captivity exile for 70 years, they're coming back into the land, they're, they're still not right. And so the prophets uh, call the people, they check the people. And then as you read the historical narrative, you, even, you see in terms of their priorities and whatnot, like things, things aren't right. Which brings you back that emergence and prophecy really are pointing you to Emmanuel and presence. The only one who's going to make this right is Jesus. Now, at the time of Esther, we're dealing with a community who are in exile. They're not a part of the waves that are going back to the land. They're in a, a part of the kingdom of the Persian Empire. And they are there in the land, and we get a snapshot of what it was like to live in this kingdom of the Persian Empire. On your outline, you have this morning a table that shows you how all of these books fit together. I wanted you to have something that you could take home with, stare at, and really rehearse these books. Uh, you know, you could tuck this in your Bible. Uh, I really want you to understand. This is uh, something that's unique about our church. We actually teach the Bible, and we want you to learn the Bible, and we teach the Bible in context. Imagine that, you know. There's a lot of people who, you know, preach the Bible, but as I say, they're just using the Bible as a prop or an accessory to their pastor outfit. See, I'm using the Bible. No, you're not. You're just pulling it out of context and using it for what you want to talk about. So this will help you to see how everything fits together. Okay, so that's the historical context. You also have to have literary context in mind. So we have our Bibles open to Ezra. What kind of a genre, what kind of, a, of literature is this that we're reading? Well, it's historical narrative. And so historical narratives in nature are descriptive, not prescriptive. So the text isn't prescribing, it's just describing what happened. Furthermore, this descriptive narrative is a particular kind of narrative. It's a dystopian narrative. It is important for you to understand what a dystopian narrative means because the Bible is filled with them, and unfortunately, even tragically, modern readers miss this important genre or storytelling technique of dystopianism and as a result, they miss the spirit-filled power of the text, of the sacred text inspired by the Holy Spirit. So what does dystopianism uh, in terms of a genre mean? Well, dystopia is the word that comes from a Greek word which describes a place, okay, tapos, that is dysfunctional and is dark. Dystopia is the opposite of utopia. In literature, dystopian narratives are a common form from the Bible from the ancient world all the way to our modern culture. In the modern world, we think of George Orwell's 1984. Or we think of Animal Farm. We think of Huxley's Brave New World. Uh, scholars note that dystopias are characterized by dehumanization, totalitarian governments, decline in society. Hence the title this morning with the word politics in it. We're going to see pagan politicians and the madness that ensues. Nevertheless, the way the dystopian narrative is unfolding, it's reminding us that God is provident over it all. Okay, so I'm talking about this because in Western culture, to give us this context, in West, Western culture, uh, we don't do dystopian narratives well when it comes to the Bible. We really like having happy endings. We really like for the two lovers to be in love even when the story involves a love that should not be, you know, like a guy cheating on his wife 
and somehow they manipulate the storyline that you're like rooting for him to get the girl who's not his wife. You're like, oh, Hollywood, thanks. But, you know, we, we really like the lovers to connect. We like the happy right off into the sunset. We're really entertained by utopianism in our culture. And as a result, preachers of God's word get sucked into this utopian idolatry. And because of this, when they preach the book, they make Esther into a happy hero. They make the character Mordecai, who we will meet today, into a loving family member. And so, so they miss entirely what's going on in the text because they want to turn the characters into heroes. Uh, but these heroes aren't like modern heroes. They're deeply flawed. In fact, the, the narrative is a mess. It's dystopian. And the point of that is to draw us to God, who is our only utopia. It is, it is God who is the true king of heaven. And so the story begins with a messed up king on earth. Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. Now it took place in the days, in the days of Asuerus. Asuerus reigns over India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces. In those days, King Asuerus is sitting on his throne. Okay, let's, let's pause there. Esther 1.1. Who is Asuerus? He is the Persian king in power at the time. That said in Hebrew, his name is Asuerus, which we translate into English as Asuerus. If you saw him on the street and you called him uh, by this name, he might not even turn his head, you see, because it is a Jewish transliteration of his Persian name, a name Kisarsa. Um, so he might not recognize our transliteration there. For you students of history, he is more popularly known by his Greek name, Xerxes. Xerxes. Maybe you studied him uh, in your classes in history, Xerxes or Ashuerus. He is the fourth king of the dynasty of the Achaemenid Empire. He is the son of the famous Darius the Great, and his mama, Atosa, was the daughter of Cyrus the Great. Uh, so uh, he is a ruler who comes from a, a bloodline of rulers. After his death, uh, his throne passes to Artaxerxes, who rules with power. He rules, he rules over uh, the affairs of what his uh, father did in terms of the kingdom. So Xerxes, he's a powerful monarch. I might say interchangeably as I'm teaching Asuerus or Xerxes, same guy, powerful monarch, known for his military conquests. He's popularly known for going into Egypt and jacking fools in Egypt. He goes into Babylon and just, just destroys Babylon. You know, it's like a TikTok pickup game where, you know, some skinny, wiry kid just shows up, the professor, and starts hooping on people. You're like, dang, I didn't expect that. He just dominates everyone. His final invasion of Greece is a popular uh, military thing that people study. So the text tells us of the vastness of his empire. You see that in verse 1? He reigns from India to Ethiopia and over 127 provinces. Here's a map of the empire if you look up here. Esther 1 mentions 127 provinces, which are basically administrative districts that have their own local governing bodies. We also know from Herodotus and ancient Persian inscriptions that we have that there were around uh, 30 satrapies, which are larger administrative districts. Uh, all of this to say, this guy is, you know, King Kong. Like, he's, he's just crushing it. He's got a ton of power. His kingdom is huge. We read in verse 2, In those days King Ashuerus sat on the royal throne, which was at the citadel of Susa. If you look up here, I'll show you the archaeological site of the citadel of Susa, uh, the remains that we have. And next I'll show you a recreation of the place. I show you the archaeological 
so that you're reminded, hey, this is history. So for people who say things like, oh, the Bible is not real or it's changed or whatever. No, this is history. And I show you the picture also so that you can step into the text and you can use your imagination so that you get a sense of what it was like to live under this oppressive power. It also gives you an idea of the weakness of the Jewish people living in the shadows of this empire. Recall in uh, Ezra 4, 6 that King Xerxes is, is mentioned in the context of, of complaints that were being made against the Jewish people. Life for the Jewish people under this kingdom was maybe not as bad as Babylon, but nonetheless it was intimidating to say the least. Speaking of the empire, let's, let's get back into the text, back into the story. Draw your eyes at verse 3. In the third year of the reign, he gave a banquet for his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Medea, the, the, the nobles and the princes of the provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. This is wild. He throws a party for six months. This is like the old, ultimate kid and play house party. Um, but it lasts for 180 days. Can you imagine kid and play just 180 days? That's insane. And instead of, of facing a hangover, right, he just keeps on drinking and partying and partying and partying. Now, some scholars wonder if the author of Esther is like comedic, comedically clowning the culture. Like maybe this is hyperbole, 180 days, just to show how nuts and extravagant these guys were. Now, I don't think the text is clear that it's hyperbole. I, I'm going to just read it uh, literally, that these guys actually threw a drunken party for six months. Now, me, we, we moderns in the West, we enjoy the fruits of a kind of Christian culture with checks and balances, and so we may forget what you know, life was like in the ancient East. But it's still actually true today in our modern culture, as East and West come into contact with one another, uh, that the Eastern ancient culture just has different standards that they live by. They got different standards of what they think is right and wrong. I mean, even recently with the Hamas terrorist attacks on civilians, we, you, you see in the news interviews from people in the East how they're like, you know, um, we're just, you know, that was the right thing for us to do. And you're like, what? Like, how, how are you guys thinking that way? Humans hiding behind other humans in hospitals? Like, how do, how do you think that is right? This is an ancient Eastern mindset. Our concepts of right and wrong are totally different. And yeah, we throw parties for 180 days. In any case, it might be a different culture in a different time. An empire that is built on oppression, having six-month parties, right, is no thing. It makes Hollywood look, you know, like Eight Mile. Xerxes made Epstein Island look like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. These ancients knew how to party, and they spared no expense except the expense of the people and those who the empire oppressed. The citadel is the center of their parties, which brings us to the next point. We have context, and we move to the citadel. Dry our eyes where we left off in the text at verse 5. In verse 5 we read, When the days were complete, the king right, gives this banquet, seven days for all the people. They're present at the citadel of Susa, the greatest to the least, in the court of the garden of the king. Verse 6, there were hangings of fine white and, and, and uh, violet linen held by cords and purple and marble columns. Stop right there with the marble columns. Let me give you a visual of this. Um, here is a, a hall of 100 columns that we archaeologically have dug up so that you can see this. Uh, again, I show you this so that you know this is a matter of archaeology, this is a matter of history, and then also you can kind of imagine what it was like. Pick back up in the text there. Couches of gold, silver, a mosaic pavement, a pottery, marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. Did you catch that? 
This, this dude has gold couches. Gold couches. I think of my granny, you know, had those plastic covers over the couch, you know, because he didn't want to mess it up. Uh, you know, like, imagine that this, this guy is balling out of control. He has gold couches. Gold couches. Uh, and when my wife and I first got married, we, we got white couches. And, you know, that was cool, white couches. And then we had our first son, and we learned quickly that white couches aren't cool. <laughs> uh, they got really messed up. The kids really messed those up. It reminds me of David Chappelle's skit with uh, Rick James ruining Eddie Murphy's couch. You know, well, I, can you imagine if you got gold couches and you got, you know, Rick James up in there? You know, get off of my couch. These are fancy couches in a decadent citadel. Esther, chapter 1, verse 7. We read about the, these gold and silver couches. Verse 7, we read about the dranks. They were served in golden vessels of various kinds. The royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. They got gold couches and they got gold cups. Uh, peep this. Let me show you a picture of uh, archaeologists have unearthed these ornate drinking vessels used in the Persian Empire. This empire is balling out of control. I mean, the, the rulers are living the dream. Word Up magazine, salt and pepper, heavy D in the limousine. They are on it. Over the top. Gold cups, gold couches. I mean, it makes me think of the pimp character in the 1988 parody film, I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, when he came out with his fish tank shoes. And you're like, who has fish tank shoes? Like, that is so over the top. Who has gold couches and gold cups? This is so over the top. And unlike I'm Gonna Get You Sucker, that was a parody. But parody actually works because it plays with reality. And in this case, or rather our case, we need to be reminded from our parody, especially when we're reading texts like Esther 1, that we ourselves are an over-the-top culture. Our nation is filled with this very thing. So we don't want to look at them and think, oh, aren't we glad that we aren't like them? No, no, the, the text is reading us as much as we're reading the text. F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby. Maybe you were tortured in school to read that as I was. The Great Gatsby captures this well in our culture. Lavish parties, extravagant lifestyles, moral decay. The golden age of Hollywood epitomizes this kind of lifestyle that, that rewards uh, sugar booger living. Our American luxury culture is outlandish. Our Michelin-starred restaurants, celebrity chefs, our decadent dining, our high society is filled with excessive, exclusive galas and balls. Regularly, we see leaks of what happens. Earlier, I mentioned Epstein Island. We see leaks, uh, you know, 50 Cent talking about P. Diddy parties, multi-millionaire mansions, and all kind of weird stuff going on. That said, we're in this text with this wild party, right? And we can see that in our culture, so we're not standing over the text judging it. We realize that, you know, fallen human beings are prone to doing these kinds of things. So we got golden couches and golden cups. Mind you, cups like this were not mass-produced. This was not something that you would pick up at Ikea. It was something that was reserved for the royals of the empire. This verse specifies that the wine was royal. In that day, wine was bougie. It was for the rich. Uh, the regulars drank beer. Uh, the regulars drank wine, but they would drink wine that was made from dates, not wine that was made from grapes. That's for the upper crust. The ballers drink the grapes. You lower class, you, 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 you have that date, the date wine, you know. Verse 8, look at the text, Esther 1.8. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desire of each person. So we see in the text, the bartender had no drink limits. 
The, the reference here, according to the law, is a reference to the king's decree that everyone could consume whatever they want. The party guests were able to drink whatever they desired. I like the way the NET translates this. Listen to this. There were no restrictions on the drinking, for the king had instructed all of his supervisors that they should do as everyone desired. The Jewish historian Josephus, if you look up here, I'll show you this quote from the ancient historian Josephus. The cups with the Walters ministered were of gold and adorned with precious stones. For pleasure and for sight, he gave orders for the servants that they should not force them to drink by bringing them wine continually, as is the practice of the Persians, but to permit every one of the guests to enjoy himself according to his own inclination. So imagine a room full, a room that is just loaded, and is loaded with lots of, of loot, decadence, drunkenness. Mind you, these are not Hollywood actors or rappers or rock stars. These are the rulers of the government. They are drinking their way to the top and no doubt sleeping their way to the top. Aren't you glad we don't do that anymore? No, our politicians do the same thing. And I'm not going to name any names, but I could. People sleeping their way to the top, drinking their way to the top, doing all kinds of things in you know, the United States of America. From politicians to presidents, everyone in between, we've seen the scandals. And usually in these scandals, who's the most vulnerable? Women. Children and women. The vulnerable are victimized. That said, keep reading. A woman enters the text. Draw your eyes at verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the palace which belonged to King Ashuerus. So here a woman enters the text. It's Vashti. Vashti means best. Uh, this might not have been her name, Vashti. It might have just been a moniker that the king gave to her because she was the best of his many wives. He had tons of wives. But Vashti was the best of them. The ancient historian Herodotus wrote about one of uh, Ashuerus' wives named uh, Amistris, uh, who could be Vashti's actual name, or maybe that was another wife, but we know that he had a ton of wives. And we know that being the best Vashti, Vashti would have been in a place of influence. Uh, we see that she has influence. She has the ability to throw a party herself. The queen is depicted as doing her own thing, and later we're going to see that her, her baller king husband uh, isn't happy about this party. So there's likely more than drunkenness and decadence going on. You know what I'm saying? There's some infidelity and uh, perversion. There's some Epstein Island type stuff, some P. Diddy parties type stuff going on down there. And uh, the queen Vashti is, is not feeling it. Uh, granted, uh, she's not the only woman in his life because he's a serial polygamist and playboy, which brings us to the next point on your outline. We've looked at the context, the citadel, and now the conflict. Esther chapter 1, verse 10. On the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. You see that? So according to this part of verse 10, the king is high as a kite. He's been hitting that peyote. His mind is all over the place. Now, it's worth noting from uh, ancient writers such as Herodotus, they're reports that uh, the Persian uh, politicians, they like to get lit and then make government decisions. So from ancient records, this was like a thing. It's like, hey, you guys, let's get faded and then make decisions for everyone's lives in the empire. I wonder if it's the same thing today when I look at legislation in our state and country. If we have people writing and deciding things in California, or just, you know, faded out of their minds, because when you look at the decisions, you're like, you must have been high. That is absolutely dumb. And in any case, in addition to making government decisions while inebriated, they also make life decisions. In the case of the king, 
uh, they start making some decisions about his life, specifically his wife, and so it appears that the party that she threw was an act of resistance. Back to verse 10 where we left off. He's high, he's merry with that wine. So he communicates with his homies, Mehuman, Bista, Harbona, Biktha, Abatha, Zethar, Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of the king Ashuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king, her royal crown, to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. The king calls for slaves to go grab the queen. They are described as eunuchs. Okay, these are slaves of the king. I'll say more about that, that freaky practice. And the king, the king demands that she is displayed Vashti. Hey, you go, go get Vashti. I want her to come in front of my friends. This suggests immorality. It's exhibitionism. Verse 11 notes her beauty. In fact, the name or nickname Vashti best is very similar to a Persian word that means a beautiful woman. The king wants to pimp her out and parade her in front of the crowd. You know, stunt on his friends like, yeah, check out my girl. Now, mind you, he is drunk. And that said, there is a saying that alcohol brings out the real you. And in this case, we see the real king was a real pervert. In the next chapter, we see that he has a harem. And here we see his eunuchs, which means that this dude castrates dudes. Uh, and that's all a part of his sex trafficking tyranny. Uh, you, you are going to castrate dudes and make them the guys who take care of your ladies. Remove their testicles so that you literally emasculate these men to assure that they don't have the normal chemistry in them that might make them want to uh, touch on things. They, they're not able to do this because they have lost their manhood, literally. As you can see, the king is a pervert who castrates men and oppresses women. His character, or lack thereof, was coming out as the booze was flowing in. It makes me think of the many stories in my life that I have heard from loved ones and seen in the news of people who find themselves in immoral situations that would have been avoided had not liquor been in their system. And maybe some of you know that personally. I have years of my life where I wasn't walking with the Lord and had to learn that the hard way. Uh, studies, studies show that drunk driving statistics in California, for example, uh, saw a whopping 1,069 fatalities from car crashes in 2022. 30% of traffic fatalities in California are due to alcohol-related road accidents. Get that liquor in you. Start, start doing stuff. Similarly, similarly, we see that the king is headed for a crash. Verse 12, Vashti said, I'm not doing it. Look at verse 12, Vashti refused to come to the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs, and then the king became very angry and his wrath burned within him. Right? Now, you can't blame her for not wanting to come. She's put up with a lot already, no doubt. But the king's drunkenness and attempted voyeurism of his wife is too much. Maybe she had done this before. Maybe she had done this before. This fool gets liquored up. Hey, Vashti, come out here and, you know, do a little strip for my friends. Maybe she had done this before, but this was the straw that broke the camel's back. According to the ancient Targums, which is an Aramaic interpretation and translation to the Hebrew Bible, it maintains that the issue was that the king wanted her to strip in front of the party. Vashti wasn't having it. This was the sort of thing that kings uh, use their harems for. You throw parties, you got a harem, you have the girls come out, Epstein Island. So Xerxes wants the queen to come out, the Vashti to come out, and he's going to do this to her to give his boys a show. Look at the text, verse 13, draw your eyes at the text. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, wise men, they sound like knuckleheads to me, it was custom for the king to speak to all those who knew the law and the justice and who were close to them. So we've got uh, Karshina, Shethar, Amnamatha, 
Tarshish, Mirs, Marina, uh, Memukan, the seven princes of Persia and Medea who had access to the king's presence and, set, and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is it to be done to Vashti? Because she did not obey the command of the king, Ashwaris, delivered uh, by, by the eunuchs. King is hot to trot. He wants to punish her. So he calls for his court of thugs to get advice. And here's what the council of the drunken fools decide. Verse 16, in the presence of the king and the uh, princes, Memucan said, Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also the princes and the peoples who are in the provinces of King Ashwa. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, causing them to look with contempt to their husbands, saying, King Ashwaris co commanded Queen Vashti to be brought to the presence, and she didn't come. So these fools are focused on themselves. They're worried that if word gets out that this woman said no to her husband, that their wives are going to do that to them. <laughs> you know, you know, hey, make me a sandwich. No, I don't have to. Vashti, Vashti wasn't about that sandwich life. I don't have to make you a sandwich. If this spreads out to women in the empire, this could be crazy. It's worth noting here that the word for husband, Baal, is not the common term for husbands, which is ish. And this is significant. Scholars note that both words could be used in the Hebrew to mean husband, but the word Baal implies lordship and mastery. Uh, it is a word for slave-owning. Uh, the, the use of the term here might subtly reveal the, nator, the narrator, the writer's, opinion of Persian marriage, that these were men who treated their wives as slaves. Now, in light of this, we can see that the women's rebellion was not a real threat because women in that culture were like slaves. They were powerless for the most part. Herodotus observed that the Persian culture considered it the greatest insult to say to a man uh, that he was a woman. Like, if you want to get under a guy's skin, just call him a woman. There was no chance of women's rights movement in that culture, like the women's rights movement that we've had in our culture. And on that note, in our country, the only reason why you could have women's rights was because of the church. The early voices of women's rights in American cultures and in the West came from Christians, who were also the vocal abolitionists. Abolitionists, women's rights, they were the trailblazers of this. Exerces wasn't having any of that. Rights for slaves? Rights for women? Uh, heck to the gnaw. We're not doing that. He's livid that a woman said no to him, and he calls for his boys to put an end to this. Draw your eyes at verse 18. So the ladies of Persia and Medea heard of the queen's conduct. They're going to speak in the same way. Verse 19, if it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued, and let it be written in the laws of the Persians and the Medes, that it cannot be repeated, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of the king, and let the king give her royal position to somebody else who's more worthy than her. So she's going to get exiled. Mind you, that effectively would have made her very, very vulnerable for sex trafficking and exploitation. Everyone would know the king and the powers would not protect her. Out there on them cold streets in Persia, the king's not going to protect her. She would become a prize for pimps to exploit an evening with the queen. I got an evening with the queen. How much? All right? they, they would take advantage of this. In light of vulnerability and oppression of women in that culture, you can see how their response to her saying no is utterly disproportionate and depraved. The king, if he had any bone of righteousness in his body, he should have shunned the council. But he's like, yeah, I think that's a good idea. Verse 20, the king's edict, uh, which will be heard through the kingdom, great as it is, all women give honor to their husbands, great and small. Um, the, this word pleased the king of the princes and the king of Memucan pr proposed, verse 22, so he sent letters to the kings and provinces, to each of the provinces, according to the script, to every people in their language, that every man should be master in his house. These tyrants spread the edict through the empire, lest any rumors of women saying no come. This is damage control. 
And notice what they use for damage control. They use the media. Times have not changed. Political powers control legacy media. They use it to advance their own drunken oppressions of people and to save face. Emails disappearing. Laptops disappearing. Mistresses being paid off. Meanwhile, the media isn't even talking about those things. They're distracting us with other stories that don't fit the narrative of the powers. I'm going to stop myself before I get in trouble. All right, so context, citadel, conflict. Next point on your outline, if you flip the outline, is contest. Draw your eyes at Esther chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of the king Ashwaras had subsided, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So he's like sobering up. His anger subsides because the liquor is getting out of his system. And then he comes back and he starts remembering, right? Beautiful Vashti is gone. What's the chauvinist going to do? Apologize? Try to get her back? No. He's going to have a beauty contest. <laughs> this idea comes from the same peanut gallery that influenced him to exile Vashti. So surprise, surprise, their next idea is sped like the last one. Verse 2 that's special ed. Uh, verse 2, then the king's attendants who served him said, look at verse 2, let the beautiful young virgins be sought for the king. Uh, verse 3, let the king appoint overseers in the provinces of his kingdom so that they may gather beautiful virgins to the citadel of Susa, to the harem, in the custody of Haggai, the, the king's eunuch who is in charge of the women, and let cosmetics be given to them. And then the young lady who pleases the king, the queen is going to replace Vashti, and this made the king really happy. It pleased the king. So the government calls for women to go to the citadel and to toss them into the harem. Earlier, I showed you this uh, picture of the citadel, of the archaeology and the reconstruction. Uh, it's actually worth noting that some of the original archaeologists think they located the harem storage room. I'll, I'll spare you on that. But the fact that women respond to this call actually shows the systemic injustices against women in that culture. And they run deep. Poverty, of course, would have been a factor at play, like sex traffickers today who prey on the weak and vulnerable. Uh, this call would have no doubt exploited many women. So the government calls for the women to come from all the provinces. So it seems the king, the king wants to experience some different ethnic groups in the empire. He, he wants to get exotic with it. He wants to see what pleases him, the text says. This, uh, this sexual... You know, student may uh, be, uh, uh, the, the sexual experience may also be a kind of uh, vindictive ethnic snub on, on Persian women. So the king has shamed his Persian wife, Vashti, and now he's going to shame her even more. He's going to get a girl who's not even Persian, right? Huh. You know, he's trying to one-up her. And this is going to bring us into the text where the text is going to move to a non-Persian being coronated as queen. So we move to the next point, coronation. Verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew who was of the name Mordecai, who was the son of Jair, the son of Shemai and Kish, a Benjamite, who had been taken into exile in Jerusalem when the captives had been exiled, Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had exiled. So here we meet Mordecai. The text tells us he is a descendant of Kish, which according to 1 Samuel chapter 9, verse 1, is the name of the father of King Saul, Another Benjamite, so according to the text, also, according to the Talmud, he is a descendant of the first king of Israel. He's Jewish, but the name that is mentioned here, Mordecai, is not Jewish. Mordecai is a Babylonian origin, which makes sense given that he is a survivor of the Babylonian holocaust of the people. The name Mordecai is 
uh, thought by scholars to be tied to Marduk, who is the pagan storm god in Babylon. Now, we know this name was somewhat common at the time because we have found written in four Persian courts in 30 texts, as seen in the Paraspolis administrative archives uh, that were discovered in Iran in the 1930s, this name comes up. I always weave in this history and archaeology. I hope you guys like that. I hope you think that's fun so that you can see like, hey, again, you know, people are going to be like, oh, the Bible is full of fairy tales. No, we're talking history. This is corroborated by history, archaeology, all that. We didn't check our brains at the door. We put our thinking caps on. Okay, so Mordecai, he is the cousin he is the cousin and the guardian of this girl named Esther. Draw your eyes to the text, verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had no father or mother. Now the young lady was beautiful of form and face, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Here we meet Esther. Her Hebrew name is Hadassah. Unlike Mordecai, she actually has a Hebrew name. The name meaning myrtle tree. The myrtle trees are picturesque in Israel. She's called Esther. That's her Babylonian name, which is derived from a pagan fertility god, Ishtar. That said, it could also be from a Persian word that means star, or it could be, it could be a part of a Persian translation of the word myrtle or wordplay on Ishtar. The origins of Esther are less clear in terms of the name, Babylonian Persian, but what is clear from the text is she has no parents. She's got no parents. She appears in the text, no parents. It makes me think of the character Rey in the Star Wars franchise, who's the main protagonist in the sequel film trilogy, right? The Force Awakens. In that film, we meet Rey. She's a parentless scavenger, abandoned on planet uh, Jakku as a child. And then later, she joins the resistance in conflict with the First Order. And oh my gosh, if you haven't seen it, spoiler alert, she turns out to be a Jedi. Esther, too, was without parents, and she ends up becoming a Jedi who is used powerfully to keep people, her people specifically, from another historical holocaust at the hands of this empire. Speaking of empire, let's read verse 8. So it came about that the command and the decree of the king were heard, and many of the young ladies were gathered to the citadel of the Susa in the custody of Haggai, that Esther was taken into the king's palace in custody of Haggai, who was in charge of the women. Now the young lady pleased him and found favor with him, so we quickly... Uh, provided for her cosmetics and food, gave her seven choice maids from the king's palace, and uh, transferred her from uh, her maids to one of the best harems. This is straight up cringy. If, if I'm thinking about like my daughters or you know women I love, this is cringy. Of course, based on what we have read, you would expect cringy from the king. But what makes me cringe here is that Esther's cousin, her cousin, is the one who brought her to the harem. You brought her to Jabba the Hutt? He's about to chain her up like Princess Leia? And just, like, are you for real right now? That's your cousin. Cousins don't do stuff like that. She's an orphan too, man. And you're her guardian. Do you know why you're called a guardian, bro? Because you're supposed to guard. That's what, that's what you're supposed to do. And instead, you hand her to the harem? You hand her to, to this guy? And based on the narrative of the book, it seems that he did so to put her in a position in a place of power in order that he could use her to climb that corporate ladder. Again, it's a dystopian narrative. And if you don't get that, you're going to try and whitewash it and be like, oh, they're heroes. No, this is straight up cringe. To make matters more cringy, there is an ancient rabbinic tradition from the Babylonian Talmud, Mashkit Megalah, and it explains that Esther was being raised by Mordecai until she was actually of age to become his wife. 
The Torah doesn't forbid kissing cousins, so, you know, and that sort of thing happens in the ancient world. The text said in verse 7 that she was being raised as his own daughter. In the Hebrew, the word here is ba'at. The word for household is the word ba'it. This could be a wordplay that he was raising her to become a part of his ba'it, to actually become his wife. If this is the case, it's even more cringy. I'm not talking about the kissing cousins part. That's our modern culture judging the ancient world. What I'm talking about is like, bro, if she was going to be your wife, that's your fiancé. Are you for real, for real? You took your fiancé and threw him to Jabba the Hutt? Bro, you are gross. You are, you are not a man. Give me your man card back. What are you doing? It reminds me of Abraham in Genesis 12 when he fails to protect his wife Sarah from the Pharaoh who thought she was pretty. Pharaoh was like, hey, what's up with her? And then Abraham's like, ah, that's my sister. You know, you, you want my sister? You know, and so Pharaoh's like, yeah, cool. And then Pharaoh hooks it up with Abe, gives him a bunch of gifts. But in that case, in Genesis 12, God intervenes to rescue her, whereas in Esther, right, as noted, it's kind of like, hey, where is God? What's going on? Oh, he's there. He's working behind the scenes. And might I add, they're very dark scenes. Verse 10, Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had instructed her not to make them known. Now, why Mordecai tells her not to say, I'm Jewish, is unknown. We could speculate that he was afraid of anti-Semitism, but there were many Semitic communities in the A&E within that empire. And that said, Persians were uh, generally good to the Jewish people. According to Esther chapter 9, verse 16, there were uh, 75,000 of them in the king's provinces. And the king had no official Jim Crow laws against them. They seemed to be doing uh, well under the Persian Empire. In fact, later, spoiler alert, uh, Mordecai gets his way, climbs the corporate ladder, gets an employee gig in the government, and when he does in Esther 5.16, the whole city of Susa actually celebrates. So it doesn't seem that, you know, the city or the area is anti-Semitic or anything. It seems something else is going on in Mordecai's mind. The plot to pimp out his own cousin as a piece of flesh to catch the king's eye. Keep in mind, we know of the spirituality of the post-exilic period. As I noted in the introduction, there's rampant compromise. Rampant compromise. We, we saw that in Zechariah and Haggai. So we don't want to whitewash, you know, old Morty and make him a pristine hero. We, d- we don't want to whitewash or give a pass to Esther either because of her victim status. Unlike Vashti, what did Vashti do? She stood up and said, heck to the no. Esther's going along with it. And what she is doing involves compromising her body to undress for or arouse or sleep with a pagan man out of wedlock. Added to the spiritual danger of this is the biological danger, considering all the STDs floating around Susa. I mean, this is, this is crazy. Now, all of that said, remember, God uses flawed human beings to do his work, so we shouldn't be surprised. Added, we can think of, of, of ways of honoring humans in the past without whitewashing them, learning from their mistakes, seeing how God uses messy mortals for his bidding. And in this case, God is going to use these two to save the Jewish people from a holocaust. At this point in the narrative, they have no idea. They have no idea of this. So they're just looking for a way to climb the corrupt corporate ladder in a world of great poverty, oppression, and struggle. When we sanitize the struggle and whitewash the characters, we lose what is happening. Uh, But again, we like happy stories. We like our characters to be like Superman, Superman, you know... He doesn't, he doesn't sleep with Lois Lane. Well, the modern versions they make him, but, you know, the, the cool Superman, Spider-Man, you know, they're just, they're like, they're pristine morally. 
Uh, but these characters are more like Iron Man. He's like, you know, he's kind of a, you know, and yet he like saves people, you know. So the ancients would understand it's better than our culture. We want everything to be pristine. The ancients, in fact, understood it. We have a shrine, a possible grave of Esther and Mordecai in the Galilean archaeological site of Kfar Baram. Uh, this is in Israel's northern border near Lebanon, which shows that the ancients could eat the meat and spit out the bones. No pun intended, but, you know, there's legend of their bones being there. There's also legend of the tomb of Esther and Mordecai in Iran at Hamadan. Look at this. Iranian Jews and Iranian Christians uh, have long held that the bones of both of them are there in Iran. It is, it is the most significant pilgrimage site for Jews and Christians in Iran today. Sadly, the dome has been the target of ter terrorist vandalism and arson acts by militants who hate Jewish people. In any case, my point here is that while we're seeing these characters and while we're seeing the cringy or whatever, we can still honor that, that God uses people in spite of themselves. He uses people in spite of themselves. And that's not an excuse to be a, a dirtbag, but, you know, it, we see God uses people. Every day, verse 11, Mordecai walked back and forth in the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and how she fared. Mordecai's like watching uh, The Bachelor, you know, the TV show The Bachelor, where a dude is given a couple dozen ladies that he dates, sleeps with, in a process of elimination to find the one that he wants to marry. The show has had like 25 seasons of fornication, stigmatizing virginity, and objectification of women, and we love it. <laughs> Apparently they just signed up for more seasons. But unlike The Bachelor, that has long been criticized for its lack of ethnic and cultural diversity, Old Dirty Xerxes has quite the diversity program. He, he likes tasting samples of other cultures. Verse 12. Now, when the turn of each lady came into King Ashuerus, after the end of the 12 months, under the regulations of the women for the days of the beautification were completed, six months, oil, six months, spices, cosmetics, the young ladies were to go into the king this way. Anything that, he that she desired was given to her in a harem. Verse 14, in the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem to the custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not come again, go in to the king, unless the king delighted in her, which was summoned by the name. This is worse than the bachelor. The king is just sleeping with, sleeping with everyone. Hebrew Bible scholar Dr. Tomasino writes, as many scholars have noted, the language here is suggestive. The phrase to come into, used four times in the section, is used in the Old Testament as a euphemism for sexual intercourse. Myrrh, the precious spice derived from the resin, the Kamaphora bush was frequently associated with lovemaking in the Song of Solomon. The text discreetly avoids any overt reference to sex, but the implications of the scenario are clear. The language is charged with innuendo. Verse 15. Now in the turn of Esther, the daughter, uncle of Mordecai, taking her as daughter, comes into the king. She did not request anything except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, was in charge of the women, advised. Esther found favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So she's climbing this corporate corrupt ladder. She finds favor, which I believe is a subtle way that the storyteller is letting us know that God is at work behind the scenes because God in sacred scripture is the one who gives favor. In any case, notice here that the orphan's father is named. Did you see that? Hadassah's father is, is named here. Abihail. When introducing the women to the court, you'd have a formal designation like and next up, we have the daughter of Shamalamalama. You know, next up, we have the daughter of blah, blah, blah. Next up, we have the daughter of... That's customary. I imagine as an orphan being in a foreign harem, being tossed around, your flesh being tossed around, and then to hear your father's name, 
your dead father's name announced, how jarring that would be? Maybe hearing it would jar her senses so that she would take a stand like Vashti did. You likely know this isn't what happens, so let's look at what happens. Verse 16, so Esther is taken into the king to the royal palace in the tenth month. Verse 17, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she found favor and kindness with him more than all the virgins that he set in the, in the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Earlier we read about how the king delighted in other women, but here we read that he loves him some Esther. Now, I don't know that a man of this much unbridled power and sexual perversion and addiction can even begin to know what true love is. In fact, the word love that is used here in the Hebrew, ahav, is a word that is also used for the human appetite for objects like food and drink, objectification. The king loves what he sees and he wants what he sees, but this love will not cause him to empty his harem and give Hadassah the kind of exclusive, unconditional love that love truly is. He just wants her as an object. He wants his passion satisfied. And so he does what players do. He throws a party. Verse 18. Then the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all of the princes and his servants. He made a holiday for the provinces and gave gifts according to the king's bounty. The pericope started with a party. It ends with a party. It started with one wife. It ends with another wife. Lots of drinking and sex in between. It's a dark story. So let's have some takeaways. and Let me conclude this thing. Conclusion on your outline. We need to keep in mind, as I noted in the beginning, that this is a descriptive text and not a prescriptive text. The Bible records lots of shady and dark stuff. So a lot of times people attack the Bible and be like, yeah, but the Bible says it's okay to have slaves. The Bible says it's okay to have multiple wives. You're like, you just sound dumb right now because the Bible doesn't say that. It describes that. It describes people doing all kinds of crazy stuff. But describing what crazy people do is not an endorsement of doing it. It's a description. The context, of course, is exile, as we noted. And so it's a time of darkness. And it's a dystopic narrative that's describing this darkness. But even in the darkness, there is hope. Because God is bringing his people back to the land, fulfilling his promises. Far from where Hadassah is, there are people coming back to the land. And there is hope that the fallen earth will be restored Esther and her Jewish community were impacted by the exile. Furthermore, she's an orphan. It is worth noting in the Hebrew Bible that the orphan was used as a metaphor for Israel. If you were here at the beginning of service, what was our first public greeting? Ezekiel 16. What is Israel depicted as in Ezekiel 16? The baby of unwanted parents, left to die, bloody umbilical cord, just out, out on a dirty street. And then God comes and he adopts and raises the child and makes that child a part of his family as his own wife. Think, think of the story of the Bible. This triune God who's Father, Son, and Spirit who rescues fallen humanity. He steps in and he chooses to adopt children for himself. That we could become children of God and such we are. There is a light that shines in the darkness of the dystopia. A light that is pointing to ultimately the coming of Emmanuel and presence. The son who becomes a man lives among the people of promise and dies at the hands of a corrupt government in order to provide salvation for his people. Now Esther was not rescued by her kin. Um, Mordecai did not make Esther his own and protector. He did not die for her as Christ died for his people and makes his people his own bride. So we may ask ourselves in our lives and even in a narrative like this, where is God? The text is pointing you to the greater story. Where is God? 
Behold him hanging on the cross of Calvary. Behold God using a, 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 pagan, a pagan king like the Caesars to accomplish his will that the son would die for us. God used the pagan king in Esther to accomplish his will. God uses pagan kings in Rome to accomplish his will in the son. This is providence over politics. We might be disturbed by the way government officials conduct themselves and the laws that they enact and whatnot, but this text reminds us that God works through evil for our good and for his glory. It's an election year. People are going to go cray-cray like they did every election year. It's getting worse. Uh, but for Christians, better not. With stories like this, you're reminded that God is in control. God is in control. And he's moving the story so that the people are going to come back to the land. The son who was sent, who died in the land for the sins of the people, who ascended into heaven, he's coming again. Jesus is coming again. Recall what the angel told Mary. The angel told Mary what? It's right here in front of you. Luke chapter 1. You're going to conceive a son. You'll name him Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. It'll have no end. Hebrews chapter 12, we read in Hebrews chapter 12 of this kingdom that cannot be shaken. A kingdom that cannot be shaken. Of this God who is a consuming fire. God is going to win in the end. This world is a hot mess. But there is time for us to come to him and find reconciliation and forgiveness in him. The exiles in Esther's day were looking forward to this. Persia seemed so insurmountable. But guess what? Just like Assyria, just like Babylon, Persia falls too. Those Greeks come in and just put the bang, bang. They just beat them down. They ride into human history like, like Debo on a bike, just beating up people. The Greeks just rock everyone. The Greek historian Herodotus writes of the gathering of Ashuerus's mighty men. Uh, the Greek historian Herodotus writes about how they got crushed. The Greek historian Herodotus even writes about how these fools were having this long drunk party just before, a year before, the Greeks came in and crushed them. The palace that we read about, that citadel, burned to the ground in 435 B.C. Burned to the ground. Xerxes is dead. Artaxerxes is dead. The party is over. But we have a kingdom that will never die. We have a king that already died and came back to life and is going to give life to his people. So while their party is over, ours is just getting started. And the show continues. And we're going to continue in worship and come to the communion table and sing two songs and wrap this service today. And as you come to the communion table this morning, be reminded that the table is family. It's a picture of how God has rescued us. The son who was sent, who was broken for us, is pictured in the bread and the cups of juice, his blood being poured out for us. And if you're here today and you've yet to come to him, I'd encourage you, come to him. Uh, he's amazing. He's dope. There's nothing better than Jesus. He forgives you. He loves you. He restores you. He reconciles you. And you could cry out to him today, right now, before I finish this sentence. <laughs> Forgive me. He is the true king. All empires will fall. His kingdom is unshakable. Let's pray, have communion, sing a couple of songs. Would you bow your heads and hearts? Lord, we thank you that you are provident over the politics that the powers of the shenanigans of men do not catch you off guard 
And Lord, it's in your grace and in your patience, ultimately, that you put up with this. Lord, we confess that we are often frustrated with things that politicians do and people in power do. And yet, Lord, your gospel reminds us that we too are just as messed up as they. And so, Lord, we come to you seeking, uh, Lord, repentance and faith that you would grant again to us afresh today. As we come to the community table and remember what your son has done, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move and work within us. Uh, began the message asking the question of where are you, God, and the times in our life where we feel like you're not near. Oh, Lord, draw near to your people. Make your presence known, we pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.